All right, if you would stand for the reading of the word, uh, and uh, we're going to ask the Lord to just really bless our time together here uh, today as God is doing some, some great and wonderful things in, uh, in the lives of, of our church and his people. Uh, let's pray. Father, we thank you today for this opportunity to go into your word. We pray that uh, what we say and do will be pleasing in your sight uh, and that the words of our mouth and the meditation of our heart will be acceptable to you. God, we just pray that the gospel will be made clear that, Father, all the glory would be yours and not ours. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, we're going to continue our series, Studies uh, in First Peter, Exiles. And today, uh, turn your Bibles or turn them on to First Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 12. First Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 12. And reading from the English Standard Version of the Scripture, here's what the Word says to us today. Finally... All of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. But on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. Verse 10 says, For whoever desires to love life and see good days. Let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And today we want to talk from this thought, pursuing a godly life. Pursuing a godly life. You may be seated in the presence of the Lord. Now, one of the most difficult realities facing Christians in the first century and every believer since that time was the question of how to live a godly life in a world and uh, that continually challenges the believer to refute the moral imperatives of Christianity, and to pursue unrighteous living. How do we live in a world that wants us, by its very nature, to live unrighteously? So much unrighteousness and sin is encouraged in this world. It's not just present, it's encouraged in this world. And so, and so not only does the world system uh, uh, in which we live seek for believers to react Contrary to our beliefs, but believers must also wrestle with another reality. And that reality is that there's this war going on in our flesh, uh, our flesh that is in the process of becoming sanctified, is the process of sanctification. We have an internal war between our sinful desires and our spiritual imperatives. So on the one hand, we have the flesh trying to determine and, and make us uh, uh, and encourage us to do what is not righteous. But on the other hand, we have the Spirit of God residing in us that is always encouraging us to righteous living. That's the reality of the Christian walk in this world. In short, my brothers and sisters, our calling is to live in such a way that we reflect a risen Savior before a dying world. How do people see Jesus in us? 
How does that happen? And now the importance of this call cannot be understated because it has serious implications for the effectiveness of the gospel of Jesus, which is to be our primary message. In fact, I would say that this call for believers to pursue a godly and righteous life is so important that the integrity or the wholeness of the gospel message to some degree depends on our practice of righteousness. Now, what are you saying? Pastor? I'm saying we're not perfect for sure. But make no mistake that there is merit to the old saying, practice what you preach. Amen. There's merit to that. Because how many of us think back to before you knew Christ, we would see Christians and we we see Christians living contrary to what they say they believe. And it was discouraging to us. I mean, many of us know that when people start talking about the church, they rarely talk about Christ. They talk about church folk. Amen. Well, I don't go to church because church folk. I don't do this because church folk are hypocrites. And it's, it's not an indictment of the veracity or the truth of the gospel. The indictment really is against God's people. And so we, we, we must know that there's merit in practicing that which we preach. And even though perfection eludes us in this world, we must never, ever use that as excuse to live by any means other than the standard of Christ. In fact, helping us seek and pursue the standard of Christ is one of the primary reasons we operate in community with each other and under the tutelage and leadership of those specifically gifted by God to help us in our pursuit of righteousness. Now, to this end, the Apostle Paul chimes in. He writes in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 14, he says these words. And he gave the, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers. Now, look at that. Shepherds and teachers. Now, here's their purpose. Verse 12. To equip the saints for the work of ministry. Okay? Not to fleece the saints. <laughs> Amen but to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Now, what is the purpose of that? For the building up of the body of Christ. Verse 13, how long should it last? Until we all attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure. Now, this is important. To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Please understand that the standard that is set there is not a human standard. It is a standard to the fullness of Christ. Let me make it plain. If you want to know how you're doing in your Christian walk, stand next to Jesus. <laughs> I mean, I know you can't literally stand next to Jesus, but in your mind, just kind of kind of think for a moment. What would I look like in terms of measuring my Goodness next to the goodness of Christ. Well, how would I look with my 
person, my attitudes, the way I behave, the way I act in public and in private next to Christ. I might easily be able to look good standing next to one of you. You might be able to look good standing next to me. But that's not the standard to which we're called. We're called to this standard of Christ. So though your husband, your wife, your friend may at any given time make you look good. (laughs) Don't get excited by that. Because even though you might look better than them in that moment, stand next to Christ. Amen. I knew it wasn't going to be many amens on that one. I just. But look, and he says, he says, the reason is so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. So we are to stand next to Christ so that we will not be victims of human schemes. Some of those schemes, unfortunately, start in our own sinful hearts. So therefore. My brothers and sisters, we pursue godliness and righteousness, a standard set by Christ and not man. We are not to live up to the standard set even in our own mind. You know, the I'm doing pretty good kind of thing. But we are to pursue that which originates in the heart and the mind of our Lord. He is the one who sets the standard for godliness. Now, this is critical because too often in the dynamics of church, and I mean the organizational dynamics, the body dynamics of church, too often in those dynamics, we encourage people to live by our standards, many of which, meaning those standards, we are not, uh, we're not only unable to maintain on our own strength, But we actually use them as a means to gain some type of spiritual superiority to other people. Oh, you don't have to say nothing there. (laughs) I mean, we kind of lord our spirituality over people so many times. You know, we get new people that come in and they come in to us and they come from situations where maybe they are babes in Christ or maybe not even in Christ. And then we want to act so holy. Look, I'm going to tell you, one of the greatest evangelistic moments in my life when I was real with someone about my struggle. There's a great evangelistic moment when you say that I, like you, even though I serve as a pastor, there are things that I struggle with. And that I'm standing in Christ, not because of me, but by the sake of the gospel, God has has poured out his love upon me. Whatever righteousness you see is not mine, but is his. Whatever glory that comes from that is not mine, but it's... I'm going to have to preach by myself this morning. I see that. The glory is belongs to him. So our calling is to pursue a godly life in not only our words, but more importantly, we are to give real evidence of our pursuit with the, by, of, of this godly life with the manner by which we live. In effect, our actions should leave no doubt 
that we are living in pursuit of a righteous lifestyle. Should leave no doubt. People shouldn't have to wonder whether you're pursuing righteousness as a believer. Nobody should leave there scratching their head saying, now, I know they, they say they go to church, but that thing right there, <laughs> that seemed a tad ungodly. <laughs> I know this doesn't apply to anybody in here, but I got to say it. You haven't been cussed out till you've been cussed out by somebody who claimed to be a Christian. I mean, people in the street look at some of our cussing and be like, wait a minute. Using some new words I've never even heard before. <laughs> we <laughs> then we say crazy stuff like now don't make me lose my religion. Look at what you made me do. You act better, I wouldn't have to cuss like this. <laughs> Now, 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 again, 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 before we drill deeper into our text, let's illustrate the ideal of just how serious the call to pursue righteousness really is. The Apostle Paul speaks of this pursuit in his own life, giving us an up close view into what this pursuit means to him in Philippians chapter three. In, in this text, he speaks of what it means for him to demonstrate with his life. That he is pursuing eternal life. Even though Paul knows that being in Christ, by the very nature of being in Christ, he has this eternal life. He sees it important, even critical, for the sake of the gospel he preaches that people know of his desire to live righteously. Look at what he writes in in. In Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 through 14, he says this, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect. But look at the words he used. He says, but I press. Everybody say press. There's something about the idea of pressing that means applying pressure. I press. I apply pressure. Watch this now. I press on to make it my own. I don't have it. I haven't attained it. Everything's not there yet. But I'm pressing. I'm applying pressure on myself because Christ Jesus, the reason I do this, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own. But one thing I do. Now listen, watch this. Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward. Look at those words, pressing and straining. Straining forward to what lies ahead. As believers, always keep in front of you the beauty of living a righteous life. How beautiful is it? Come on, somebody who used to go to the clubs ought to just say something right there. Somebody who on Friday night was doing other stuff and Saturday night ought to say, somebody who used to sleep in on Sunday morning ought to say something right there. The beauty of worshiping and living for the Lord. How much better do you feel? It's wonderful when your best friend's name is not hang over. 
How great is that? When you can wake up in the morning and greet the brand new mercies of the Lord. When you can appreciate the sunshine and even the rain. Hallelujah. How wonderful is that? He says, so I stress, I strain forward, I press on. There's that word again. I apply pressure to my life on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I'm pressing. See, some of us are doing too much stressing and not enough pressing. You're stressing over things that you need to stress over instead of pressing towards the things that God has laid in front of you. That's going to catch up with you when you get home. (laughs) This is the crux of our lesson in our text in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 12. The godly life is a life that God himself calls believers to pursue for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We do not pursue righteousness for our own self-worth or our pride. But on the contrary, we pursue righteousness that others may see the saving power of Christ. Our pursuit has purpose for others and benefits for us. That's just like God, isn't it? God says, I'm going to use you. I'm going to use you for other people, but I'm going to give you some benefits for that too. Amen. That's a praiseworthy moment right there. You ought to. Amen. So let us let us drill down into this text and see how Peter illustrates this ideal by sharing three important elements. Now, here they are right now. Right now. The first is pursue godliness in your treatment of other believers. Pursue godliness in your treatment of other believers. Look at verse eight. Verse eight says this. Finally, all of you don't miss that. All of you. Have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Peter here implies that we are to pursue godliness in how we treat other believers. He makes this point by using the term all of you. Context, I'm talking to every believer. Every one of you who's named in the name of Jesus Christ. All of you, not some of you. Not just those who are greatly mature among you. But even you newbies, your pursuit should be making sure that you treat other believers right. He says, look at this. All of you need to do this with each other. We know that this is his general directive is for believers because he would not call us to have a unity of mind with unbelievers. Amen. We're never called to have unity of mind with the world. You know, and if you're trying to make friends with the world, you're going to end up an enemy of God. So there are five imperatives for us that he uses here to describe our pursuit of godliness with our fellow believers. The first one is this unity of mind. Now, unity of mind simply means sharing the same thoughts and attitudes. So so. Here's here's a challenge for us because the standard is Christ and not us. It should be fairly easy for us to share the same thoughts and the same attitudes. But that's not the church world, is it? 
We struggle in that dynamic because too many of us make up our own standards as we go. We try to create standards which make us comfortable. I can think of a hundred reasons not to read my Bible. I can. Yeah, I can think of it. I'm I'm busy. I'm doing, you know, I don't have time. I, I, you know, all these reasons I can think of. But understand this. While the enemy's bombarding your head and your mind with all those reasons not to, all you need is one reason to do it. And let me give you that reason. Because in this word, you have life. Everybody say life. In this word is life. And I don't care what the enemy says, no matter how busy you think you are, take time out for life. So there's a common standard that's applicable to all people. We have this common standard in the body of Christ, the unity of mind. Now, now, not only do we have that, the second imperative we have here is sympathy. Look at that word sympathy. So sympathy means caring deeply about the needs, joys and sorrows of others. I may not be able to empathize with everything Stone is going through, but I ought to be able to sympathize with him. Empathy means we've shared some common experiences. I may not have the experiences that he has that have caused whatever joy or even sorrow in his life, but I ought to be able as his brother in Christ to sympathize with him. How Wonderful the people of God would present a picture of who God is if we would take the time to just look and make sure we're sympathizing with one another. I don't have to have your experience. But if you're telling me that your heart was broken because of a bad relationship, even though my relationship might be going on smooth sailing right now, I ought to take the time to sympathize with you. And that's a part of being uh, of an imperative of how we pursue godliness with with our in, in our lives to be sympathetic to other believers. Now, the third one is the third one is brotherly love. Now, some of these things seem like they're real self-explanatory. But now remember, the, the Greek word for brotherly love is phileo. We get Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. But but let me tell you, it's, it's even deeper than just that 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 knowledge of, you know, hey, those people who founded Philadelphia decided they were going to have call it the city of brotherly love. But here's what here's what it really means. It means a family love. How many people in here have a brother and sister? Show of hands. Almost everybody. How many people in here have a brother and sister that sometimes irritate them? (laughs) Almost the same number of hands. How many people here seeking a divorce from your brother and sister? Don't raise your hand. (laughs) Well, you, you don't. Because that's your brother. That's your... Oh, they get on my nerves. Boy, I wish... Ooh, don't call me every time you need something. 
How come you can't organize your finances so that every first of the month you need $25? Every first of the month you need $100 from me. I mean, but that's my brother. That's my sister. Why do you keep on messing with it? Because that's my family. You can't choose your family. <laughs> you can choose your friends. But you can't. Your family. And that's how it is in the body of Christ. That we ought to have that kind of love for one another. A family love. Because here's another element of family love. Now, your brother and sister could get on your nerves, but growing up, if you was the oldest and somebody was picking on your family, uh-uh, I, I know they're irritating, but you're not going to pick on my family member. I'm going to stand up. Come on here, somebody. Put yourself in great danger sometimes <laughs> on behalf of your family. Why does the church, people of God, allow the enemy to jump on our family members? We ought to be praying when we see the enemy act up in their, in their lives. We ought not be taking glory. See, I told him that they needed to pray more. We ought not have that attitude. We ought to have the attitude as soon as we are aware that the enemy is trying to wreak havoc in the lives of our brothers and sisters. You're not going to jump on my brother or sister. See, when you love somebody, you'll fight the devil for them. With one hand tied behind your back if you have to. When you love somebody, even if there's a disadvantage in the situation, the devil looks like a Goliath, you'll become a David. I wish I had somebody here. You might have to find you five smooth stones and say, devil, I'm getting ready to do some damage here. In the lives of your brothers and sisters. So Peter's saying, you got to have that family love. Now, he also says, you got to have a tender heart. Tender heart means compassion. You got sympathy and you have compassion. Look at how they work in tandem with one another. Sympathy is the internal feeling that I get when I realize that, that I need to, 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 sympathy, to connect to my brothers and sisters' pain or their joy, their sorrow. Compassion is what's generated by that feeling. Now I act in a compassionate manner. I'm not going to allow my brothers and sisters' sorrow to continue to be a burden in their lives. So from a point of compassion, I stop what I'm doing and I say, let's pray together. Now, before you think that telling someone to just pray about it, equals compassion it does not it is a step in the right direction but it is not that kind of compassion compassion says I'm going to stop what I'm doing and I'm going to move because I, I, I'm sympathizing or empathizing even with your circumstance. I've been through that situation. I know what it's like to have a difficult relationship. I know what it's like to be by myself. And so I'm going to pray with you. 
Not only I'm going to pray with you if you're hungry, I'm going to feed you. If you don't have clothes, I'm going to clothe you. Most of us have clothes in our closets right now that we won't ever wear again. I don't care how many green smoothies you have. Some of y'all looking at me like, oh, Pastor, I'm getting back in that pants. I don't care what you say. <laughs> By the time you get back in it, the style would have changed. <laughs> That's like the brother that has the leisure suit in his closet. You know, <laughs> somebody, some of y'all remember leisure suits? That's right, boy. That, that used to be the thing, man. <laughs> I have to admit, I had a leisure suit or two, but <laughs> but even though I might get small enough to fit them again, I'm not gonna wear them. I come in here in the leisure shoes, y'all will be looking at me like Pastor the Seventies called and they want their suit back. <laughs> so so we have to have compassion with people. Compassion on them. And then the last one here, the last imperative here that Peter says in in in, in how we act towards one another is we have to have a humble mind. Now, interestingly enough, you have unity of mind first and you have humility in mind last. So he opens with the mind and he closes with the mind. So it's like everything in the middle is encapsulated in what kind of mind you have operating in your life. Do you have a mind of unity with your brothers and sisters or do you see yourself as a lone ranger? Do you have a, 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 a mind that is of humility in your life? A humble mind simply says that I'm not tied up in pride or self-indulgence. But in humility, I place the interests of others ahead of my own. And I resist pride in my life. Pride, my brothers and sisters, is as seductive as it is destructive. There are things we do in pride that we don't even realize are the result of our pride. When we start announcing, even though we do have time, well, I don't have time for this. When I'm not, it's pride that's generated in our spirit. When we say that I don't have time to read and study my scripture, it's pride that's telling you that you're okay right now. Pride is seductive and destructive. So now that's the that's 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 how we're to act to one another. Now Peter gives us another major element here. He says, now don't just pursue godliness in in, in with others. He says, but pursue godliness in your response to being mistreated. Now let me see the hands of everybody in here that's been mistreated before. Anybody? Anybody? Yeah. Okay. There's some folks that's been mistreated. Amen. You might be sitting next to somebody that has mistreated you. <laughs> Don't be looking at them. Don't be looking over at them. See, pastor talking about you. <laughs> Touch somebody and tell them he's in your business. He's just in your business. Just. But watch this now. Verse 9. Look at verse 9. 
Verse 9 says this. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. Peter now directs our attention to one of the most important gospel driven behaviors necessary for the pursuit of godliness. And that is the response of the believer to being mistreated. And we, as we have well established in this series on First Peter, in these messages, mistreatment of believers was not only anticipated by Peter, but a reality experienced almost daily for those who shunned the godless life of the Roman world in exchange for the godliness of Christ. For people who say to the world, I'm not going to live your way. I'm going to live for Christ. Let me help you understand you will be mistreated. It will not be a situation where you might be mistreated. But Jesus himself said, in this world, you shall have tribulation. Now, the context of that is, is that because you belong to me and the world hates me, the world is going to hate you. When you live like me. So. Let's take note that Peter refers. To mistreatment directed towards the believer. As a direct pursuit of godliness. Sometimes we're mistreated. Because of our own sin. Well you can hear a mouse walk on cotton right now. Just. <laughs> We get mistreated because of stuff we started. <laughs> if you've been gossiping about somebody and they call your house and they're angry at you, don't be talking about, I'm suffering from the gospel. <laughs> you are not. <laughs> You're suffering because you should have kept your mouth quiet. <laughs> Wasn't any of your business anyway. If I want to wear my leisure suit, leave me alone. I'm just saying. <laughs> So, so, so we, we understand, but even in those situations, watch this now, we are called to correct our course, but not returning evil for evil. Therefore, Peter gives a new directive and paradigm regarding, regarding how we should respond when someone does us wrong or is foul in their treatment of us. He says, do not repay evil for evil. This is a direct connection to the words of our Savior who spoke them in the Sermon of the Mount when he said this. You have heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. And pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. The Apostle Paul picks up this same theme from our Lord in First Thessalonians chapter five, verse 15. He says this. See that no one repays any evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Don't pay evil for evil. Um, back in the, I believe it was the 70s, James Brown had a song called The Big Payback. That's for you old schoolers in here. I always... But the big payback was about, you know, you took my money, you took my honey, 
you know, I'm going to get you back. And you had Christians all to, you know, you know how we are. We go around talking about the big payback, you know, you're going to get the payback. And then we all, then we put this on people. So we get mistreated. First thing we say, you know, God don't like ugly. <laughs> now, you know what that really means? I hope you wake up in the morning, your feet swole. God going to get you <laughs> mistreating me. <laughs> but that's not what we're called to do. You don't have to tell people God doesn't like ugly. Because the other half of that is he's not too crazy about pretty either. <laughs> huh? God's not impressed by us. So he says, so he says, don't pay things back. The concurrent and salient point is that instead of returning evil for evil, our calling from God is to bless those who mistreat us. You know, I'm going to tell you what blessing means. Blessing means to pursue God's favor in the life of others. Now, watch this now, because you think bless your enemies mean to be like God, get them. That's not blessing your enemies. How many people are mistreating you and you're actually praying for God's favor in their life? Wow. Wow. You know, you know why? You know why? Because here's part of the reason. We spend too much time praying for God's favor in our own life. <laughs> you know, our prayers sound like this. Lord, give me, give me, won't you let me have? <laughs> Lord, I want, I want, I want, I, I, I. When really God is saying that if you really want to spend some time and impress God in prayer, start praying for the people who are mistreating you. Not that they stop mistreating you, but God actually blessed them. Once again, you can hear a mouse walk on cotton. <laughs> See, see, you, you should be praying, Lord, I want your favor to be manifest in the lives of my enemies. Wow. That's powerful, isn't it? Because there's no greater favor that God could give your enemy than to have them saved by the blood and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And so, so we do so. We do so because we are called to do so. And so that we may obtain the same favor of the Lord. The imperative is given by our Lord. He says, bless them that curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. In this, we are blessed to model the life of our Lord. Jesus blessed his enemies. He was hanging on the cross, people. And he looked at them and he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He blessed those that cursed him. We are called to do the same. We're called to model his life. Pray for those who abuse you. Pray for those who are gossiping about you. Pray for those who are mistreating you. Pray for those who are being unloving to you. Ask for God's favor in their lives. Now you might want to know why, and I'm just going to tell you this, and we're almost done. Let me tell you this. The reason you do that is because praying for your enemies puts you in the position for God to bless your life. Now, how does that mean? 
it means that you are showing the love of Jesus that is so independent of what your situation is. That God says, here's a person that's putting others in front of themselves in a tangible way. And so when I got, God says, when I have somebody like that, now I can pour out blessings on them that they won't have room to receive. Now I can pour out blessings on their lives because they understand how to put others first. The last thing that Peter says here in verses 10, 11, and 12, and we'll move to this pretty quickly, but I want you to get this because what he does here, he quotes Psalms 34. And, and this, is a, this is a paraphrase of that psalm that Peter takes from the Septuagint, which is the Greek Old Testament. So he brings that paraphrase into the current situation and analogy. And he says, whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Now, what, he, what he's really telling us to do, and this is our third point, pursue godliness as evidence of your salvation. So when people... They don't have to question whether or not you've been saved. You don't have to go around talking about how saved you are. You don't have to go around and every other word out your mouth is I'm saved, I'm saved, I'm saved, I'm saved. I'm saved. I'm saved. Oh, I'm not. You know, pursue godliness. Live a godly life. And even people who don't know Christ will say there's something different about you. People who don't know Christ will be drawn to you and attracted to you because your life says that I am pursuing godliness. Look what he says. So whoever desires to love life and see good days. Now, now the reality of this is, is this. Loving life and seeing good days, it's easy for us to just take that and say, well, that means things are going to be easy for me here on, on this earth. But you have to understand the context of this. Peter's talking about what's called an eschatological eschatological viewpoint, which means he's talking about what it's going to be like in the end. So you might be sitting there saying, Pastor, I love life. I've been pursuing godliness. I've been doing all these things and still I'm having some trouble. Well, let me help you understand God has not let you down. Because, see, God doesn't count time like we do. Amen? So when God talks about good days, he's not talking about a 24-hour period in your life. He's not talking about a week. He's not talking about a month or a year or a decade. As a matter of fact, the Bible says that to the Lord a thousand years is just like a day. And a day like a thousand years. So God doesn't count time like we do. So when Peter says, you want to see the good days. He says, you pursue godliness as evidence of your salvation. Because one of these days, that evidence is going to manifest itself. Oh, I wish I had a witness here. One of these days, that evidence is going to show up when Jesus comes back for his church. One of these days, if your eyes close on this side of the Jordan, you will awake in the glory of the promised land. One of these days will be the good day. And that day, everything will be howdy, howdy and never goodbye. In that day, we will walk the streets paved with gold. In that day, we will have a mansion before the Lord not made by human hands. In that day, brothers and sisters, he himself 
will wipe every tear from your eye. So if you've got to cry now, go ahead and cry. If you've got to weep now because because this is tough, it's hard to live and pursue righteousness, weep even though people treat you poorly, go ahead and have your cry now. Because when you get to glory, I just, can, can I tell it like I want to tell it? I just believe that people who have had difficulty in life, hard times, when we get to glory, God will say, everybody that's been crying, get in this line right here in the front. And the Holy Spirit of God will take that holy cloth and he'll walk up to every person that's crying and he said, let me wipe away those tears because there's no more crying here. No more hurt. No more pain. So pursue righteousness. Pursue righteousness because those good days are coming. Those good days are coming. It may not be on this side. Your marriage might be going through some difficulties right now. Your children may not understand how to, how to live according to the way in which you want to teach them. Your job may be giving you some hard times. But let me encourage you right now to keep pursuing righteousness. Live as Christ would before that boss Live as Christ would before that husband or that wife. Live as Christ would before your children. With the promise of knowing that the good days are coming. Come on, let's give God some praise in here. Stand on your feet all over the room. I want to encourage you that if you're here today and you think about what it means to pursue a godly life. Maybe that hasn't been a part of your dynamic. I want to encourage you today that he's called you to this godliness. That the pain of this world is nothing compared to the glory and the grace that shall be revealed in us. Paul says, I reckon that the sufferings of this time are not even worthy to be compared to what shall be revealed. So as you may be persecuted for loving Jesus, understand that Jesus hears and sees and that His Spirit is to encourage you. If you're here today and you have not received Christ as your Savior, I'm going to encourage you today to give Christ your heart.